Welcome to the Dog Friendly KW Podcast with your hosts, Justine and Mackenzie on Midtown Radio KW. As a reminder, this is our eighth season doing this podcast. It's crazy. And we are so happy to be back. Uh, if this is your first time listening, again, welcome. And this season, we are focusing on the theme of awareness as a dog owner. So on today's episode, we have been joined by Cassidy Jones of Ginger Naps on Instagram to talk about allyship and anti-racist animal advocacy in the context of dog ownership. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the Dog Friendly KW Podcast with your hosts, Justine and Mackenzie on Midtown Radio KW. Today, we are joined by Cassidy Jones from the Instagram platform, Ginger's Snaps. We will be discussing anti-racist animal advocacy. Welcome, Cassidy. Hey, happy to be here. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. Um, I mean, we don't have a lot of time, so let's get right into it, but I'd love if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and of course tell us about your dog and if you have any other pets we'd also love to hear about them. My name is Cassidy Jones. I live in Connecticut. That was so cute. I live in Connecticut with my singular dog Ginger um, who will hopefully have lots of siblings but I have to stop being broke first. I am currently in grad school. I'm in the sixth year of a PhD program at Yale in the African American Studies and English departments, where I work on 19th century African American eco poetics, which is just old Black nature poems, um, which is kind of how I ended up in this position in the first place. And I also run Ginger's Naps, which is an Instagram account where I talk about being a first time dog mom and also, I guess more importantly, um, the history of anti Black racism and where dogs show up in that. Yeah. And that's what we're really looking forward to learning about today. But I mean, hearing about your background a little bit, you're like, you're smart, smart. Oh my gosh. Yale. Like what? <laughs> my, my brain is like, like fireworks are going off. Like, yeah, you're, uh, you're, uh, you're. that is incredible. My um, brain also has fireworks going off and it's not good for writing a dissertation. It's just fireworks in there. There's nothing well, that's, else. That's what I was going to say. We have a very, very, very close friend who has a PhD, which neither of us have even ever considered. I support that. In any, yeah. And the story she tells us about uh, how dark the PhD days get. Um, how, are you, how are you holding up? Thank you for asking, honestly. <laughs> um, I'm well enough. That's what, my, <laughs> that's what my advisor says when we check in. No matter what I say, he goes, so you're good then? <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm good. Oh, uh, well, well enough. Well, I think if we asked our friend with the PhD, Dominica is her name. We'll give her a little, a little shout out. I'm sure she would say well enough would be, that's pretty good for mid PhD. So there you go. I'm Amazing. Almost at the end. <laughs> Hopefully this is Hopefully. the end. Well, I'm sure Ginger is a, a great emotional support for you, I'm guessing. I am her support entirely. <laughs> she is the center of my world, but she does not care about uplifting me. <laughs> the honesty, yeah. I love it. <laughs> right? 
All right, well, let's get right into it. So, I mean, as we've we've kind of introduced already, we're going to be discussing anti-racist animal advocacy and allyship. And within our organization, I mean, we do a lot outside of our podcast and anti-racism, anti-discrimination, and demonstrating strong allyship are really, really important to us and are aligned with our organizational values really strongly. So to get us started, I think for a lot of people, I like to kind of back things up a little bit. So could you maybe give our listeners some context around anti-racism in the dog space and why it really is something that we need to be thinking about? Yeah, I think that Human social justice issues and animal welfare issues are overlapping in a lot of ways. Um, and I think the answer, the answers to a lot of problems that I've seen animal lovers want to solve um, lies in taking care of other human beings. I think when the animal world becomes a more diverse and open space, we'll see less dogs sitting in shelters because there are more homes available. We'll see uh, more healthy animals because there's more access and education. Um, so I just I'm a general proponent of sharing the mission of making sure human beings are taken care of, so that human beings can help us in the mission of making sure other animals are taken care of. If that makes sense, the animal industry is overwhelmingly white. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and really, really, really resonates with me. My background is actually in social work. So I've spent a lot of time in the last decade working in a social justice capacity and I do work in academia teaching and I um, obviously in Mackenzie and I um, starting Dog Friendly KW, I feel like we've woven so many social justice issues into our work and I'm always shocked at how not only political, but how many, not necessarily issues, but social challenges that you can engage with and get involved in and how much intersection there is, even when you're working in a space that people might think might not traditionally align with those social justice issues, but it, it's, it's everywhere because you're always dealing with humans. Yeah. Anti-Black racism is um, very widespread. I haven't found a corner that it, ha- it doesn't touch yet. Um, but it's difficult to introduce that conversation to people who are used to extending empathy to pets only, asking them to divert that energy to the cause that they believe is most important, and that's fine. Um, You can get a lot of pushback. People feel defensive because they think that I'm trying to tell them that it's not worth it to try to save the animals. We need to focus on us first. But I'm really trying to uh, say that all of this works together. (laughs) And if we work together, everything gets better for everybody, including the pets. Yeah, I just to chime in on that a little bit. I've heard in the past, like, hey, why do you bring situations like this up? They're just dogs. And it's like really like yeah like you say like they all kind of just at one point or another overlap in some capacity and I love what you said about you know you can take anything um related to like yeah it's it comes down to the human so yeah I I love that um and we've historically even just when we have taken a, a position or a stance on a particular social justice issue whatever it is we've had people on social media say this is just a dog page you know 
stop talking about this. I don't want to see this. And our response to that is you can leave (laughs) because these are our values and these are things we care about. And you might think this is a dog page, but we're humans behind the dog page. And our role as allies is to support these marginalized groups in any and all space. And it's, yeah, it's definitely been a journey for us for sure. Yeah, I get that kind of feedback as well. People tell me that I'm, I'm making the dog world divisive, um, but it's divided on its own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a pretty segregated industry already. It's divided. I'm actually trying to bring us back together. Yeah. Bring down some of the barriers. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's really important to look at the the history of things because obviously that, that frames so many pieces that we're, I think, going to talk about mostly in the second half of today's episode. But you do talk a lot about the history of racism in the dog space. And I'd love to hear and learn a little bit more about what this history looks like um, and, and kind of give some of that context to our listeners. All right. Deep breath on that one. It's long. Um, The first place I usually bring people to is enslavement, U.S. chattel slavery, starting in the 17th century. Um, There were dogs being imported and then bred and trained specifically to hunt down Black people, Black people who had escaped enslavement primarily. Um, They were referred to as Negro dogs and all sorts of other names. Um, I think the most prominent was a Cuban Mastiff that was trained specifically in this area. And the training was very cruel uh, toward black people and toward dogs. Um, sometimes they would make enslaved black people beat a dog until it's angry. And then that dog was sick on the black person in turn to try to teach, teach anti-black racism to another species. Um, so that's the foundation of where a lot of the things I talk about come from. Um, also during enslavement, some enslaved people, uh, were legally not allowed, not just enslaved people, actually black people in certain countries were legally not allowed to have dogs. Um, mostly because white folks were afraid of the races of the, the violence they had inflicted on black people being inflicted upon them. If black people had dogs, um, but they said it was because of sheep. It wasn't because of sheep, but Hey, um, We move out of the 19th century. We talked about like the 18th and 19th century. Once you get to the 20th century, you have folks fighting for civil civil rights and civil rights protesters are being met most often with three things, cops, fire hoses, and dogs. The dogs were trained for crowd control, but once again, it was mostly to scare or hurt Black people. Um, So there's a very deep-seated history of police dogs, working dogs, uh, being trained to uphold white supremacy and perpetuate anti-Black violence, which is why it's less common to see a generational tradition of Black families having pets. And so there are more instances of Black folks being afraid of dogs because they were taught to be afraid of dogs by people who were taught to be afraid of dogs by people who were taught to be afraid of dogs. And so we get this lack of representation and lack of diversity in like the veterinary industry. There's, I think it's up to 3% now, up to 3% black vets and almost all of them come from one school, the only school that will take them to Skibidi. 
And then um, there are not that many Black folks participating in shows, participating in dog sports. Um, a lot of these conventions, a lot of pet spaces are just predominantly white people. Um, and so there are historical reasons for that. And I would like to fix it. <laughs> I would like to fix it because there are also lots of instances of Black people who have loved dogs throughout history, including in enslavement. They're documented in slave narratives, documented cases of people having very deep relationships with companion animals. Um, and I think ignoring that part of it uh, does a disservice to Black dog owners, Black dog lovers today. I don't use the term dog owner, sorry. <laughs> I don't know why that came out of my mouth. Um, black dog lovers who need access to more information on taking care of dogs, need to be welcomed into these spaces with these resources, with these people who know a lot already um, so that everyone can have happy pets. Is that, that's history. History. That, <laughs> that was a really, really, really great snapshot. And I think is a really good place for us to take like a quick pause because my brain is just like going at a million miles a minute. So Thank you so much for that, Cassie. Um, You've given everybody such a good introduction. So we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back to dive a little deeper into a few other pieces related to anti-racist animal advocacy. So be right back. Welcome back to the Dog Friendly KW Podcast. Today we are joined by Cassidy from Ginger Snaps, an Instagram platform that focuses on anti-racist animal advocacy. We'd love to learn more from some of your experiences, Cassidy, so let's dive right back in. Um, let's talk about your Instagram a little bit. So you talk about privilege and what it's like adopting as a Black woman. How did you make the correlation of ginger, your pity, and the stigma as a Black person adopting controversial, in quotation, breeds? Um, how, how did that come about? I learned about that through reading. I wasn't really aware. I'm sure things were happening around me that I wasn't paying attention to, but once I started doing research for the animal chapter of my dissertation, um, I was introduced to um, Afro Dog is a book, Bad Dog by Harlan Weaver, Pitbull, that book. Um, and it became more apparent that even dog breeds can be affected by anti-Black racism, which was a stunning realization. Um, but then once I read about it, I saw it everywhere. Even today. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say that I read the article um from the wildest. And yeah, yeah you, you comment on that a few times in there saying like, I never really thought about it until it happened to me. And you're like, I just, you're, you're absolutely right. Like it's, it's something that, you know, a dog is a dog and you are a person. And until um, you're put into a situation, I, yeah, I, I don't know, but Ginger, like 
you you look at that dog and you're she looks like a sweet angel. Like how can you look past that? <laughs> she is a sweet angel. Um, but as I probably mentioned in that article, I'm not sure. I talk about it all the time. Becoming in kind that Harlan Weaver Harlan Weaver talks about wherein um, my identity affects how Ginger is perceived and Ginger's identity affects how I am perceived. Um, some people see us together and she looks less angelic because she's in my hands. Yeah. That's just mind blowing to me. I, I, I really don't have words to, to say anything behind that because it's, it's a sad situation. Um, when it came to adopting her, um, what are some of the hardships that you had to to face? Um, I think some adoption applications can be very silently coded, um, but still announcing that they're looking for white middle class families, basically. Some of the requirements, like we, people bring up the fenced yard requirement a lot in that having a fence does not make you a better dog parent by any means. And that the people that don't have fences tend to put more effort into taking them outside to walk and making sure they're enriched, that kind of thing. Anyways, um, that's a classist requirement. That's the only thing it serves. And since we're in the United States, which was built on racial capitalism, classist requirements have racial implications because there's a racial wealth gap, a racial income gap, a racial home ownership gap. Um, so by excluding a certain class of people, you're also excluding many races of people, but especially Black people in the US. I think it's it's very similar here in Canada as well. Like I, I think we still see, and it's so, again, like it's just, this is where we're talking about this like intersectionality because it just, it's so intertwined. You look at a stipulation on an application for, to adopt a dog that you, you know, you have to have a fenced in backyard or you have to make X amount of money a year or whatever the particular, or you have to have a partner even, like you have to have someone else in your household. You or a, a vet recommendation. Right. And without those things, you're probably not going to be able to adopt. And a lot of those things, a lot of those requirements, again, as you said, are rooted in these structures of classism and don't, you know, honor the experience of people who are maybe struggling in poverty, who um, are more often than not, there is a far higher representation in Canada, in particular of folks who are Indigenous, um, and then, of course, of racialized folks. And it's, yeah, it's just there's this, it's like so hard to describe, but like you, no matter which side you come at it from, it's like it's a lose-lose. Right. The dogs lose, the people lose, everybody loses. Mm-hmm. So what made you really, like want to start speaking out about anti-racism and animal advocacy specifically, because it's not something that's talked about a lot. So you really just, you went out there and you started talking about something that nobody, at least in that we've seen is really talking about. And that's a kind of a really scary thing to do. Um, I wasn't scared because I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> I think I live anti-racism. I study anti-black racism. So this is just how I think and what I talk about, and I know on the internet, people are afraid of putting things out there because everyone can see them. But I think I assumed that nobody was going to see it. 
and it's my Instagram and I can talk about whatever I want. And so if I was thinking about dogs and anti-blackness, that's what I was going to post about. Um, and the like hundred people that followed me, they can't beat me up. They're on the internet. They're not real. <laughs> um, but fortunately it was well received by most people. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, you have, you have more than a hundred followers now. <laughs> And they still can't beat me up. That's how I feel. <laughs> oh, gotta love the internet. No, that's, I mean, yeah. So you, I feel it sounds like it just kind of started happening very organically and just continued to kind of. Yeah, this is just my life. Um, so one thing that I would really love to talk to you about is just around this idea of allyship. We haven't really talked about that yet. So being, you know, um, an organization based around dogs in a community that has a relative amount of influence. I guess we would love to learn how in the dog space, we really can support the the efforts of anti-racism in the dog community and all of those pieces. Yeah. I think it just starts with opening the door, making sure black folks, everyone who's not white feels comfortable entering the spaces that you're already in. Um, using your privilege to make sure that Black people are part of the conversation, Black people are being invited, Black people are panelists and not just in the audience, if they're in the audience Mm -hmm. at all, Um, that events that you're hosting are being marketed toward broad, broad communities um, and making very intentional efforts to get your events and your resources and the education that you offer in front of people who probably wouldn't see it otherwise. Um, I think what's also important is keeping up these difficult conversations, which takes Mm -hmm. practice. Um, I understand having nerves around having conversations on sensitive subjects like this, but it's really necessary because the more we ignore it, the longer it persists. Um, and we're not going to be able to address these problems or fix these problems if we pretend that they're not there. So having conversations and being welcoming are the two main things to me. Obviously, these types of conversations, especially when they're being recorded, are quite nerve-wracking, right? Like, I think there's often this idea that, like, we're going to say the wrong thing or we're going to mess up. And I have always found one of my favorite things about these types of discussions, even if I'm nervous going into them, is this idea that I know when I leave, I'm going to feel more equipped to be a good ally. I'm going to feel more equipped to use my voice um, in in a way that I should and feel, you know, more empowered and more educated. And um, while it's difficult, it's, yeah, it's, and it it takes a very long time, I have found. It's very slow. I will also say, you're going to say the wrong thing and you're going to mess up. It's going to (laughs) happen because there's a lot to learn. um, And nobody, including me, is born knowing these histories. Um, This is information I had to seek out and I still think I get some things wrong, especially because I'm real new to the dog industry. I've been studying anti-Blackness for over a decade, but the dog stuff is still new. So I'm still taking in a lot of new information and I get things wrong um, publicly and it feels embarrassing. And then I do better the next time. That's all I can do. Yep. You just got to own it when you screw up and 
make a commitment to do better. And there's really no other way other than that. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for sharing all of that information, Cassidy. We really appreciate you taking the time to educate us. We are going to take a quick break and be right back uh, to share where everybody can find you. Sounds good. You've been listening to the Dog Friendly KW Podcast with your hosts, Justine and Mackenzie. So thank you so much, Cassidy, for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you, but we do have one final question. What is one piece of advice you would give to new pet parents who are racialized? I think everybody's racialized. Um, So (laughs) I, I don't have a... I don't have a piece of advice for everyone in general, but for people that come from marginalized identities who have a pet for the first time, I think seeking out community is really important. And now there are a lot more platforms that are um, promoting black dog lovers. There are all kinds, but um, you're seeing more people of the global majority loving their dogs on the internet. And therefore we have a lot to learn from each other. Um, We can lean on each other when we face the difficult Mm -hmm. things like people calling my dog a killer just because she's with me. Um, Yeah, it's nice to have people to turn to that can, that have experienced or at least have experienced something adjacent to that. So seek out folks, seek me out. I'm around to talk to you. DMs are hard. Send me an email. <laughs> DMs are hard. I told you it's ADHD. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a great segue then, Casty. So if our listeners want to follow you and Ginger on Instagram, where can they find you? Yes, we are at Ginger's underscore naps. Like Ginger snaps the cookie, but my dog's name is Ginger and she sleeps a lot. <laughs> Girl after my own heart. I love that. all right well thank you again so much Cassidy we so appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and thank you to our listeners for tuning into today's episode of the dog from the KW podcast until next time thanks Cassidy bye